open up your Bibles to the book of Jonah. And as we left off last week in Jonah's story, it was almost like a season finale. Uh, as with most season finales, we were faced with sort of a cliffhanger ending. Let me refresh your memory. Beginning in verse 15 of chapter 1, we read, So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Well, I wonder sometimes, you know, if uh, the words are getting through that I preach from up here, and um, I think they do. They do for the most part, but I was struck with something that happened last week when I went home about someone who was taking notes on the back of the bulletin. My uh, little granddaughter of six years old, uh, seven years old, going on eight uh, next month, took notes, and you can see that's the back of the bulletin up there, and this was the whole story of the sermon. Um, you can see all the sailors pitching the cargo overboard, and uh, the fish in the sea, uh, some of them probably are worshiping God with their hands raised, and there's Jonah flying over the edge there as they pitched him over. But there was one thing as I was looking at this, and uh, it was on the top. There was the number 100. And I said, what's the 100? Now, this is how much a seven-year-old listens. At the end of the message, I made an offhanded comment that wasn't even in my notes about there were probably a hundred little missionaries on the ship going to Tarshish. And she caught that and wrote down a hundred. So I thought that was a pretty impressive summary of last week's message anyway. <laughs> so the central thought that came out of that message, that section, was that even when we forsake God, he who is infinite in mercy does not forsake us. Amen. We saw that illustrated not only in the way that God relentlessly pursued Jonah in his rebellion, but also in what occurred in the hearts of those sailors as they responded to the storm with a recognition and a worship of the one true God. But as I hinted at last time as we closed, God had even more in store for Jonah. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish, for three days and three nights. Interesting verse. Verse 17 has been the focus of many a skeptic and Christian scholars throughout the year. And yet it amazes me that so many people of faith have such a problem with this verse. There are many Christians today who are more than willing to believe that Jesus died on the cross was buried and rose again from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, but still harbor a deep unsettledness in their hearts about Jonah being alive in the deep, in the belly of a great fish for three nights and three days. Let me ask you this. If you are harboring any of that restlessness, how long does a baby live in the womb of a mother surrounded by a protective sack of amniotic fluid? Do you think the sovereign God who can sustain life before birth in a mother's womb for nine months could preserve Jonah in the belly of a great fish for a few days? He is God after all, isn't he? In 1891, off the Falkland Islands, there were two fishing boats that were whale hunting. They came across a huge sperm whale one fishing group shot harpoons into the whale, and the other boat came around and began to do the same thing to get this whale, but that whale's tail hit the second boat and knocked it over. There were two men in that small second boat. One of the men drowned. The other man was not found. Two days later, a few other boats got this same whale and killed him. And they brought the whale up to the shore, slid it open, and found the second man. The man was unconscious but still alive. And after care, resumed his life. This Jonah and the whale story isn't that far-fetched, is it? Similar things have happened before. But here's something I think is even more incredible in my opinion. And more contemporary. It was reported back in the year 2000 on Saturday, August 5th. 
a nearly frozen stowaway, survived sub-zero temperatures and little oxygen at 38,000 feet inside the wheel well of a jumbo jet on an eight-hour flight from Tahiti. The six-foot, 180-pound man who was in his 20s was responding to treatment and communicating with doctors Friday. He was covered with gear oil and moaning when paramedics arrived at Los Angeles International Airport Thursday night. Get this, his core body temperature was less than 29 degrees Celsius, Celsius, which is 79 degrees Fahrenheit, when he arrived at the UCLA Medical Center for treatment of hypothermia and dehydration. With the jet traveling at 600 miles an hour at 38,000 feet, the air temperature would have been below zero, and who knows what the wind chill factor would have been. A remarkable story, this guy's clothes were shredded from the wind. He was covered with grease. It's remarkable. Now, we don't know of any other person whose temperature body, a body temperature dropped this low who has ever survived. Anything below 85 degrees Fahrenheit is usually fatal. Wow. I put that on a par with Jonah for sure. Not only if he had gotten out of that plane and started preaching the gospel and all of Los Angeles got saved, Right? I absolutely agree with Billy Graham who said this, Jonah swallowed by a fish? I'd believe it if scripture said Jonah swallowed the fish. (laughs) It's not difficult to believe if you believe in a God of miracles. Focusing on the fish, however, I must say after all of that, diverts us from the real issue. As I reiterated in the first message, this narrative is not about a fish. As Sinclair Ferguson wisely put it, focus on the great fish and we may lose sight of the great God. The deeper work of God took place not in the belly of the fish, but in the heart of the prophet. Not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. The miracle is not that a fish swallowed a man. The miracle is that the fish paid attention to the Lord when the prophet of God did not. And yet God relentlessly pursued Jonah, even to the point of providing this great fish for his preservation and his ultimate deliverance and restoration. That's grace, my friends. That is outrageous grace. And this section that we're going to look at today is all about Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving for that grace. It's a grace that came in the form of divine discipline, a father's loving discipline and gracious provision for his wayward son. Here's a riddle that I often pose to people. If you know the answer, please don't shout it out. Just hold it. I know it's going to be hard, but hold it in. Here it is. Think about this throughout the message. What do you sit on, sleep on, and brush your teeth with? Don't say anything. Just think about that. What do you sit on, sleep on, and brush your teeth with? Think that one through but not so much that you don't pay attention to what I'm saying. (laughs) Sometimes the answer to our questions and riddles are so clear that we don't even see them. It's as plain as the nose on your face. And that is the case with this text that we're going to look at today in Jonah chapter 2. How many times have you and I been in the midst of a terrible situation in our lives, a trial of some kind, and then realized toward the end of it, that it was actually God's means of our deliverance. That it led us to our salvation. Maybe you're in one of those times right now. Truth be known, you've been a Jonah. You are a Jonah. You've been running from God and from what you know that God wants you to do. And now you're experiencing some really, really hard stuff, emotionally, spiritually, maybe even physically. Have you actually given any thought to the possibility that God might be trying to get your attention? That he's trying to spare you from further pain? That he's appointed this troubling time in your life to bring you to your senses, to lead you to repentance, so that you would call out to him in prayer? Is it all a riddle to you? 
Are you missing what may be God's clear answer? Because it could be as plain as the nose on your face. The discipline of the Lord is often the deliverance of the saints. It was for Jonah. Let's look at Jonah chapter 2, but first, you know, again, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three three nights. I'm going to call this God's divine appointment. God's divine appointment. By the way, in your English Bibles, verse 17 goes with chapter 1, but in Hebrew Bible, verse 17 is chapter 2, verse 1. The numberings, by the way, are not inspired, but I would place verse 17 right there in chapter 2 because it goes along with what follows. If last week's text were a movie, I told you I would have entitled it, Jonah Interrupted. Well, I'd give this verse the title, Jonah Intercepted. He's about to experience a personal and spiritual restoration, reorientation. The great God appointed a great fish to swallow his prodigal child. Now, appointed here is a very strong word in the Bible. It means commissioned, ordained, assigned. It's a word about who's calling the shots. It's a word indicating governance, sovereignty. Again, that keeps creeping up over and over and over in this text, in this uh, book. God called this fish for a specific purpose to pick up Jonah. This is the Old Testament version of Uber. As one writer described it with tongue-in-cheek delivery, God says, hey, fish. And the fish says, yes, Lord. God says, go pick up Jonah. Directions will be given on a need-to-know basis. This is important. Swallow, don't chew. I'll tell you where to drop him off. And the fish says, okay, Lord. For your information... The fish is better at taking orders than Jonah, God's prophet. And it's a good thing, too, because Jonah's sinking down, down, down into the depths of the sea, and he's going to drown unless God does something. When Jonah told the sailors to throw him overboard, you know what he was probably thinking? I mentioned it. He's thinking, I would rather die than do what you want me to do, God. But now that he's in the water, now that he's sinking in the deep, I think he's having second thoughts. How do I know? Because the verses that follow make it pretty clear. He's crying out for God's help. Look at verse 2. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. And you heard my voice. Jonah's desperate. Truth is, Jonah realized that he was absolutely powerless to save himself. He he had rebelled for so long and had run so far that he could not get back to God unless God helped him back. Moral of the story for anyone who's running from God, here it is. Don't look a gift whale in the mouth. Let me ask you, what situation, what vehicle... What great fish has God appointed in your life to bring you back to him? Second thing, Jonah's description of his desperate appeal follows. And I'd entitle this one, Jonah interceding. This is verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2. We're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Again, Chapter 2, verse 1 in our English Bibles. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. Now, whereas Jonah was running from God toward Tashish, we now find him turning toward God in the stomach of a great fish. This is in itself a fruit of repentance. Why? What does repentance mean? It means changing your mind, turning around, changing your direction. Instead of running from the presence of the Lord, Jonah is going into the presence of the Lord through prayer. 
His orientation has clearly changed. He's praying. And you know, prayer brings a person into the presence of God. Amen? Amen. Which is 180 degrees opposite of what Jonah was doing before when he was running away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah may have been in the belly of the fish, but he was also in the presence of the Lord because God was right there with him. There is no indication in the previous verses of Jonah ever seeking the Lord in prayer after God called him to Nineveh. There's no indication in chapter 1 of that. Just the opposite. The text repeatedly describes his rebellion and his intentional fleeing. Now Jonah has no choice. He must return to prayer if he's going to survive. And he does. Again, Jonah prayed to the Lord. What follows is an amazing prayer of thanksgiving for answering his prayer of desperation. Here is the place every prodigal must begin. Note that. As one astute pastor and scholar noted, restoration to fellowship with God must begin in the very areas where rebellion formerly existed. That is what repentance basically involves. In about 30 brief lines of poetry, we find an amazingly descriptive prayer of thanksgiving with a plethora of allusions to, if not direct quotations from, more than a dozen psalms. Jonah, as a dedicated spokesperson, spokesman for God, had hidden God's words so deeply in his heart at one time that throughout his entire crisis here in the watery depths, it was that word that was hidden in his heart that poured forth in his prayer. And when you're in dire straits, my friends, and you don't have the wherewithal to pray, you can't come up with the words, the word of God that you've hidden in your heart will come spewing out, and that will be the content of your prayer. That's why it's so important to be in God's word on a daily basis. By the way, there is no shortage of views on whether the prayer is describing Jonah's experience inside the fish or as he was being pulled down through the sea. Some commentators are convinced that God appointed the fish to swallow Jonah as he was thrown overboard by the sailors and that he never really sank in the water at all. That the fish jumped up, grabbed him, and then took him down. And that this prayer describes what was going on in the belly of the fish. I don't believe it. I'm convinced that a careful study of this text indicates that Jonah is in the belly of the fish recounting his prayer for deliverance as he sank lower and lower and lower into the depths of not only the water, but his despair. Jonah's transformation began to take place as he went down in the sea and it was raging above him. God allowed Jonah to literally hit bottom, so to speak, before he provided the fish. Look at, verse, look at these verses. Verse 3, for example. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Verse 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Verse 6. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Verse 7, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. I think Jonah's sinking. I think he's going down. I think he's going so far down that there's no more oxygen. The weeds are wrapping around him. He's just dying, and he knew it, and he remembers the Lord. God allowed Jonah to hit bottom. And that's oftentimes what has to happen to a prodigal who's running from God. They have to come to the end of themselves. 
their strength finally expended, they're flailing and they're kicking and screaming against God stopped. And then and only then does God provide a great fish of preservation and deliverance. I have heard that story time and time again from people who ran far away from the Lord and by his grace radically returned. And I have seen it take place in my own family. That is the place of awakening, my friends. That is the place of faith. That is the place of repentance. Jonah prays from the belly of the fish all right, according to verse 1. But notice the description is in the past tense. Okay, please make a note of the fact that his prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving. There is not one word of direct petition in this prayer. It is a marvelous description of what transpired while he was in the sea. That's where the petition lies. He's not praying for deliverance from the fish. He's praising God for the provision of the fish. While he's looking back at his experience of crisis in the water. The fish, my friends, was, God's, was Jonah's means of salvation by God's appointment. Amen? The raging storm, the sailors pitching him overboard, the thrashing waves, the threat of drowning, the tangled weeds around his throat, the lack of being able to breathe, all led to the transformation of Jonah's heart until he cried out in desperation. To whom? What does it say? Then Jonah prayed, Who? To the Lord. There it is again, that word, Lord. The term Yahweh. The one true God. Verse 2, it's there too. I called out of my distress to the Lord. Listen, friends, you can pray from anywhere. Even from the depths of God's chastisement. Abraham Lincoln once said, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. Jonah's prayers in the water were born out of affliction, not affection. And we find that his affliction is exactly what leads him back to God. Watch how this thing unfolds as we go through this prayer. First of all, he asked for God's help. Verse 2, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. Hold your finger in Jonah 2 and turn to Psalm 18 for a moment. Psalm 18, verses 4 to 6 say this. Notice the parallel. The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. And he heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came to his ears. Pretty uncanny, isn't it? How about Psalm 130? Verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Out of the depths. And then Psalm 120, verse 1 in the ESV says, Even in my distress I called to the Lord and he Answered me. Men is right. Jonah cried from the belly of Sheol. Basically, he was knocking on death's door. Jonah testifies, I cried for help, and it says, You heard my voice. What an intimate thought that is. Think about that. Jonah cried, and God heard his voice. You think God knows the sound of your voice out of all the people in the world? You know how when you're in 
crowded area, crowded supermarket. I know when my wife, we're in Walmart every Monday doing our grocery shopping. All kinds of people around usually. I can come around the corner and by one whistle, I'm just whistling. She knows it's me. How about a little baby crying? Every mom in this room knows that they understand and recognize the voice of their child, right? You think God hears us when we pray? This is an intimate thought. God was listening to Jonah. He's always listening, prodigal or not. It was Jonah who was finally awakened, not God. God never slumbers. God never sleeps. God finally had Jonah's attention, and he wasn't spiritually sleepwalking anymore. Actually, what Jonah experienced was exactly what he needed to experience in order to be an effective mouthpiece for God with unbelievers. Think about that. Think about what Jonah was going through in the water. Think about what he must have been feeling like, how scared he was. God was preparing him with those thoughts and feelings. So he would better understand what other unbelievers feel when they're confronted with hitting bottom. Sometimes we as church-saturated people need that reminder, don't we? We often have no idea what people without God are going through. And I'll be one to agree with you. Sometimes I don't get it. I think people today are scared. I think they're lost in a sea of cynicism. I think they're drowning in life's problems and sinking into depression beyond their ability to handle. And they're finding it hard to breathe. It's like the weeds are choking them. It's wrapped around their throat. They know they're in trouble and they're quite sure that if God is even there, that he's not really that pleased with them. So it's easier to dismiss the thought of the existence of God. And although they won't readily admit it, they're anxious about what's going to happen to them when they die. Think about it. Jonah was experiencing exactly what those sailors experienced during the storm before they pitched him over. They were terrified that they would perish and as a result of God's wrath of the waves pummeling them. But not only that, but Jonah was also experiencing, I believe, this thing in the water. What the Ninevites would would experience at the truth of Jonah's preaching in chapter 3, which we're going to see, which brought them to their knees in repentance. In a very real sense, I think God was preparing Jonah for the ministry that he would bring to the Ninevites. But even beyond the call to go to Nineveh, I think God was calling Jonah to something far more personal. He was calling him to submission and obedience to his Lord. And it worked. Second thing that we find in this prayer is that he acknowledged God's discipline. Look at verse 3. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. I think Jonah was beginning to recognize that God was the source of his affliction. Look at what he says. For you had cast me into the deep. Your breakers and billows passed over me. He was attributing all of this stuff to God. I read this week, I heard... God would have you living anywhere than in disobedience, even in the middle of the sea. This was no accident. Jonah knew he had brought this on himself. This was God's hand of discipline designed to bring him back. And for some of you, you're still not getting it. You're not getting it yet. Now, it's not always the case. A couple of weeks ago, I made this disclaimer that not everyone suffering affliction is running from God. But now, today, I need to flip that over on the other side of the coin. It's not always the case, but sometimes when a child of God is running away from him in disobedience, he will use radical measures, a hospital bed, a financial crash, a relational trial, or possibly some other crisis to bring them back to their senses, to bring you back to him. 
Because sometimes Christians can get so far away from walking in the Spirit, so far away from hearing God's Word, that the, it's only a crisis that will cause them to finally, finally resort to prayer and to seek His face. Psalm 119, verses 67 and 75 say this, Before I was afflicted, I went away, but now I keep your word. Doesn't that say it all? I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Jonah was acknowledging God's discipline here. Read verse 3 again. You cast me into the deep. Your breakers and billows passed over me. Doesn't that scare you a little bit, that verse? I mean, I don't know about you, but it scares me to death. I saw a movie preview this week of an upcoming film based on a true story that depicts a couple inadvertently sailing into a hurricane that leaves the girl stranded in the middle of the ocean. No, no thought of help from anybody. For how long? Listen, I don't know about you, but that, to me, it's like the thought of being in the middle of the ocean all by myself with no hope of rescue. It scares me to death. That is like my worst nightmare. That's why I chose the screen picture behind me and the bulletin cover. Because it gives you that, that feeling like you're out of your depth. And you're into God's depth. Because it shakes me up just thinking about that situation. I would, it would certainly wake me up to my helplessness and drive me to prayer. David Jeremiah asks, have you ever noticed some of the strange places where prayer meetings happen in the New Testament? In Acts 16, Paul and Silas had a prayer meeting where? In jail at midnight. Daniel, no doubt, had a prayer meeting when he found himself in a lion's den. And the Lord Jesus told the story about a rich man who started praying in hell in Luke chapter 16. It is interesting how God has to work on us to make us people of prayer, isn't it? And he certainly worked on Jonah. Notice Jonah's admission that it was God who cast him into the deep, not the sailors. It was all God's doing. He recognized his situation is ultimately from the sovereign hand of God. And it's interesting that in Paul's letters, Paul never calls himself a prisoner of Nero or a prisoner of Rome. What's he say? I, the prisoner of the Lord. I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ. You look it up, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4, 2 Timothy 1, Philemon. It's all there. So whether it is for our discipline or simply the way that God chooses to work in our lives? Recognizing God's sovereignty in our affliction is a sure sign that we're gaining the right perspective. Amen? That was most powerfully illustrated by the perspective of Joseph in the midst of his own experiences in Egypt, even though he was not running for, from God. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 45? You don't have to look at it. I'll just read it to you after they had cast him in a pit and then he ended up in Egypt all these years. Joseph said, now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me here to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore now, it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's the Genesis 50-20 principle. Genesis 50-20, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That fish was Jonah's preservation. Johnny Erickson Tata's perspective arrests me at this point. Listen to what she says in this extended quotation. I really don't mind the inconvenience of being paralyzed if my faithfulness to God while in this wheelchair will bring glory to him. When God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues you have been avoiding. He's pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue to try to live in two worlds, obeying Christ and my own sinful desires? 
Or am I going to refuse to worry? Am I going to be grateful in trials? Am I going to abandon my sins? In short, she says, I am, am I going to be like Christ? He provides the sufferings, but the choice of how you handle it is yours. And then she concludes, but today as I look back, I am convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by his love. How could she say that? She says, I wasn't a rat in a maze. It wasn't the brunt of some cruel divine joke. God had reasons behind my suffering, and learning some of them has made all the difference in the world. But see, when you're running from God, that's the last perspective that you have. Peace is the last thing you experience. His love is the farthest thing from your thoughts. Yet no matter how low you get, you can always reach God and God will always reach you. That's what Jonah found out. And he asked for God's help. He acknowledged God's discipline, and yet he experienced God's grace. Look at verses 4 through 6 here. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. There's the first inclination of hope right there. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains, and the earth with its bars was around me forever. But, but, you have brought my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Jonah was in the depths of despair, and you can sense it in his words. He felt banished from before God's eyes. You see that? Verse 4. Expelled from the sight of God. And that's how a Christian caught in the throes of rebellion feels when they hit rock bottom. They feel that God is no longer there for them. He doesn't see them. But the fact is, no matter how far you feel you are from God, God's not far from you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, God loves you and he's a relentless pursuer of his prodigal children. The lyrics of a song by the band Unspoken just ring in my ears here. You can never fall too hard, so fast, so far that you can't get back when you're lost. Where you are is never too late, so bad, so much that you can't change who you are. At the foot of the cross, you can change who you are. Psalm 31, 33 says this. As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. That little word, nevertheless, in Psalm 31, and also at the end of verse 4 here, nevertheless, I will again look toward your temple. That is a critical word. Jonah's putting his hope in the Lord and is banking on God's grace. In other words, he's saying, though I've been cast away, yet I will look again toward you. You know, too often we don't cry out to God until we hit rock bottom. But you know what? You don't have to wait that long. You don't. Read verses 5 and 6 again. Slowly, purposefully in your quiet time. Emotionally, this is desperation. Jonah's going down. He's going down, down, down. And these verses describe not only the belly of the fish, but the dark abyss of the sea. It's like the song I used to sing with my kids, right? There's a hole in the bottom of the sea. You know that song, right? There's a wart on the knee, on the leg of the flea, on the wing of the fly, on the tail of the frog, on the bump of the log, and a hole in the bottom of the sea. They used to laugh that one till there's no tomorrow. Well, Jonah was in that hole. He was in it deep. But he didn't find the flea there. He found God. He found God was there. And that's the one thing the song never stated that I sang to my kids. God's in the bottom of the sea. Amen? 
And no matter how dark and deep the hole, God's there. But as James Edwards reminds us, whenever someone like Jonah slips into the brink of such an abyss, there can be no rescue until it comes from God. Verse 6, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. You know, Edwards, James Edwards calls it, and I love this phrase, it's a counter-offensive of grace in the face of despair. A counter-offensive of grace in the face of despair. Look at verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And so he remembered God's sovereignty. That's the next thing, verse 7. In the depths of his sin and despair, Jonah did the right thing. He acted on what he already knew as a child of God. Maybe not what he felt, but what he knew from the word of God. He turned to God and away instead of away from God. He reversed his trajectory, which caused him to follow an upward spiral toward God now. In a chapter entitled The Secret of Radiation Therapy, Bob Sorge likens victory over our sin to an effective cancer treatment. He says sin is like cancer. God's presence is like radiation on that cancer. The only way we change is when we come close to the Lord. His presence is the place of change. Distancing ourselves from God always produces spiritual regression. Proximity to God always produces spiritual progression. The purpose of the voice of condemnation is to push you away from his presence. So if you're feeling condemned, know what that's about. However, the purpose of the voice of conviction is to press you toward the face of Christ. You can distinguish between conviction and condemnation simply by considering which direction the voice is goading you toward or away from the Lord. Jonah's now listening to the voice of conviction in his soul, not the voice of condemnation. So let me ask you, which voice do you think you're currently listening to? Which is it? Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7 say this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Isn't that hopeful? Finally, Jonah reaffirmed God's truth in verse 8. Those who regard vain idols, he says, forsake their faithfulness. I like this translation a little bit better. It gives more of a... Uh, understandability to it. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Here's the beginning of Jonah's restoration. The word faithfulness here is the Hebrew word for God's covenant love and faithfulness. You've heard it before probably. Chesed is called. One of the most important and repeated Old Testament words used over 248 times in the Old Testament. And it refers to God's gracious, faithful, and unconditional love. And it's translated most often in the Old Testament as the word loving kindness. And this is most readily played out in the New Testament through the gracious love of God demonstrated through the cross of Jesus Christ. The truth of what Jonah says here is a timeless truth. And here's another way of translating it. He says, those who worship worthless idols forfeit the mercy that could be theirs. Nothing could be more relevant to our lives, our culture, our families, and our churches today. You forsake God for a worthless idol and you are forfeiting the grace and mercy that could be yours. This is what the entire book of Hebrews is about. 
The writer is warning his readers of the dangers of forsaking God's faithful covenant love, which he has given us in the person of Jesus Christ, our salvation. I was going to turn there, but it's getting late. So just look up these verses this week. Meditate on them. Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 3. Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 15. And Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 31. That one I might read. It says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but uh, sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. How much severe, he says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. But how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and it has insulted the spirit of grace? It's a terrifying thing, the writer of Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of a, a living God, for he's a consuming fire. That's the warning. And it's there in Jonah too. If you go after an idol, and I'm not talking about bowing down to a gold thing in a shrine in your bedroom, although that could be it. We're talking about things like pride. We're thinking of selfishness. We're thinking about things like whatever you're pursuing more than you are pursuing God. Faith is exercised by looking away from ourselves and our failure and getting our eyes fixed on the grace and mercy which flow from Jesus Christ, crucified for you and me. Jonah finally made that right choice. He released the idol of his self-governed life and he would not forsake God's faithful love, his chesed. Right, right there in verse 8. Verse 9, he returned to God's will. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. I read some great words recently. Grace makes repentance possible. It's great. Simple, but it's great. And that's how lasting change happens, my friends. By grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. Jonah commits himself to living out that change in verse 9. I love that phrase. I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That word voice means an audible sound, sounding aloud. Sometimes it's translated in the Old Testament as thunderings. It's like a worship service that Ernie was talking about with thousands and thousands of people all lifting their voices to God. And that's his sacrifice, his commitment. It reminds me of another New Testament passage in Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks and admit, confess his name. I wonder if this is Jonah's version of saying to God, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. Even Nineveh. Again, Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And that leads us to the last phrase in his prayer. Verse 9 at the end. Say it with me. Salvation is from the Lord. This is Jonah's dramatic affirmation. This is Jonah invigorated, reinvigorated. So, what do you sit on, sleep on, and brush your teeth with? It's very easy. A chair, a bed, and a toothbrush. <laughs> Didn't see that one coming, did you? Sometimes the simple truth is so clear that we don't even see it. It's as plain as the nose on your face. And that's exactly what we end up with at the end of chapter 2 in Jonah. Clearly, salvation is from the Lord. But you know what the greatest thing about this is? I love this. 
I've waited all week to tell you this. Tell us, tell us. Taking me, what, 50 minutes to do it? And here we are. It's the key statement of the entire book. Salvation is from the Lord, plain and simple. But here's the best part I discovered in my word studies last week. The word for salvation here is unmistakably simple and clear. It's the Hebrew word Yeshua. A derivative of the name Jesus. Yeshua. Can you believe it? A fitting conclusion to the prophet's prayer, wouldn't you say? It's as if Jonah caps off his prayer in a prophetic word identifying the one true deliverer, the Lord, the Savior of the entire world, whom God has appointed as Messiah, who would one day come and provide the means to save harbor for every man, woman, and child living on the face of the earth. Amen? This is the name above all names, the only name under heaven, which has been given among men by which we must be saved. This prayer of Jonah literally ends in Jesus' name. Don't you love that? Oh, I just love it. it. Took a long time for Jonah to see it. He didn't want to see it. How long will it take you? How long will it take you? So the next time you're in the depths of a bad situation, when you find yourself in the belly of a stinking fish, see if it might be God's way of escape for you. Leading you to repentance. Leading you to Jesus. Because if it is, recognize your sin, realize God's hope, and resolve to change. Because the discipline of the Lord is the deliverance of your soul. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you've allowed these poor people to sit in this hot room on this day and, and endure this long message. But Lord, long message or not, it's the message we all need. We need to hear about Jesus. We need to hear about his salvation and the grace that he offers us and that no one can fall too far from your saving hand. So I pray that if there's a person in this room this morning that is in that place of Jonah and they have not yet bowed their hearts and their souls to you that they would do it before they leave this place by the simple act of acknowledging that they are far from you to recognize that the only way back to the surface is through you and to pray the simple prayer, Lord, I know where I am. I'm far from you. I need you. Save me. And to know without a shadow of a doubt that you will do it. For I ask it in the precious name of Jesus, Yeshua, our Lord and Savior. Amen.